Well, this morning we're back in our series on the life of David in 2 Samuel 1. Uh, the series is entitled David, an ex- uh, Ordinary Man Who Became an Extraordinary King, and we've been tracking him through 1 Samuel. Uh, now, what's interesting is when you look in your Bible and you see First and Second Samuel, that wasn't in the uh, original manuscript, that, that division. Uh, that's actually something that probably came just a thousand years ago. So originally, you would have had the letter or the, um, the, the story, the scroll of 1 Samuel all written together. Now, I think that 2 Samuel 1 is a great place to divide because we find a significant turn in the story. Uh, So far, we've been tracking the life of Saul and how David interacts with Saul as he has been anointed king. Uh, You'll remember back in um, 1 Samuel, uh, David was anointed king, the future king, but this was all while Saul, the present king, lived. And between that time and 1 Samuel 15 and and 1 Samuel 31, uh, it has been a long journey looking at the tragic life of King Saul. So if you're looking through, you'll notice in 1 Samuel 10 that that's where he was confirmed by the people as Israel's king. And then he was rejected by God quickly in 1 Samuel 13 and 15 when he failed to kill the Amalekites. Uh, You'll notice that he loses the spirit of God as David, his successor, is anointed in chapter 16, but he reigns for 42 years, Saul does, between being anointed and then uh, him dying. And during that period of his life, for almost three decades, we find a majority of Saul's life is chasing after King David. In fact, uh, the story really looks a lot like an episode of Wally Coyote chasing the Roadrunner, right? Uh, he's, also, he's always looking at these ways that he's trying to trap David and take his life, but every time we find David narrowly escaping, God is protecting him, saving him, keeping him safe as his future anointed king. David has the spirit of God. Saul has lost it. And for 30 years, David is running from Saul. Throughout, we find that David is hoping in God. He trusts that God would bring about his purposes. He lived out the confidence that he proclaimed when he was faced with Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 47. You remember what he says? He says, the Lord saves not with sword and spear. I'm not putting my trust in all of the wisdom of this world the technical, technological advances of the weaponry that Saul had, that's not what I'm putting my confidence in. My confidence is in God. And God gave David the victory over both the Philistine giant Goliath, and we see this morning the Israelite giant Saul without either sword or spear. God put David, his king, on his throne himself. David did not jockey for position He didn't step out of line and kill the Lord's anointed. He let God enthrone him. See, God gave David the victory over both of these giants. But as we're going to see today, God fulfills his promises in this broken world in such a way that often those victories feel bittersweet. So we're going to find David finding the fulfillment of all of those promises that he's been awaiting since 1 Samuel 16. But as he tastes it, there's a a bitterness to it. We're going to look at that today. Now, if you're writing notes down, this is a good thing to write, our big idea. We're going to see that all of us need a righteous king who gives us hope in the face of death. All of us need a righteous king who gives us hope in the face of death. So begin, let me go ahead and, and pray for us that the Lord would give us help. Pray with me. 
Well, this morning as we come before you, we are needy. We are needy to hear from you, our great God. And Father, as we look in this text, there is more than we have to get to. But Father, we pray that you would speak to us. Speak to us through your word. <clears throat> Lord, these are words that have been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And Father, you have given your people your spirit. And we ask today that your spirit would work amongst us. That he would transform those who love you more into the image of your son, Jesus. And for those who are far from you, Lord, let this word pierce their hearts and draw them near to you. It's in the great name of your son that we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, first, notice an Amalekite reports the death of Saul and Jonathan in verses 1 to 10. We have a report that is coming through this Amalekite about the death of Saul and Jonathan. Now, you'll remember that David's at this point been living with the Philistines, and he almost joined them in battle against Saul and Israel when Philistines were attacking Israel. That's how convinced Israel, uh, the Philistines were that Israel, or David rather, was on their side. But when David shows up, the Philistines said, you know, this just doesn't seem smart. David is the one of whom we have sung, or women have sung, has killed tens of thousands of us. It's probably not a good idea to take him into battle with us. He might turn on us. And so as he's returning on a three-day journey back to Ziklag in Philistine territory, he shows up, and you'll remember that the Amalekites had raided his home while he was away, taken away his wives and all of their wives and children and all of their goods and possessions. And so David has chased them down to retrieve all that they have lost. All of this while Israel is fighting the Philistine. And this count shows that David is greater than Saul. So as we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 1, this author, as he is writing about David, wants us to see how David is a greater king, a greater Messiah than Saul was. So look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. Here's what the word of the Lord says, 2 Samuel 1, beginning in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, and his clothes torn and dirt on his head, and when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And then David said to the young man, who told him? How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked Behind him, he saw me, and he called out to me and said, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord." David's men are likely celebrating because they have just defeated the Amalekites. And they've come back and they are resting 
as they are awaiting news about what's happened with the Philistines and Israel. Now, if you've been reading through 1 Samuel, this episode is compelling for a number of reasons. You'll remember that Saul lost his throne for not wiping out the wicked Amalekites in obedience to the commandment of Yahweh back in 1 Samuel 15. You'll remember that back in Exodus, God told Moses that he would be against the Amalekites forever and that he would blot them out because they were famous not only for hating God, but for hating God's people. So the irony of an Amalekite announcing the death of Saul is thick. Do you see it? This king who is meant to hold the law in one hand and rule with authority in the other, the people of God, and show them what it looked like to be obedient to the word of God. He was meant to be the physical representation and manifestation of the rule of God on earth. And here he is dying with a a sign, a road sign, pointing back, highlighting his disobedience. His disobedience led to death. You can't miss the irony. Add to that that David, David has just returned from striking down the what? Amalekites who raided his home, fulfilling what Saul failed to do. Do you see it? This author is wanting us to see David is the king. He's the real deal. He obeys God. He fulfills the commandments of God as he is going along. I mean, David wasn't even necessarily seeking to kill Amalekites on that day, but they raided him, and so he said, well, I'll do the will of God and I'll fulfill it. David didn't lose a man, but Saul lost all of his sons and his warriors, and the Philistines even, you find in the text, took their homes. Quite the opposite of David's experience with his men. See, the author buries the lead and doesn't reveal this guy's identity. You'll notice he doesn't tell David who he is, and we don't see who this man is until verse 8. And there we see the Amalekite also gives a funky report of the death of Saul. Did you see how it's kind of funky? If you've read 1 Samuel 31, then you see it. It doesn't quite match up. I mean, it's close, but it's just not the same. You'll remember that he just said that he happened upon Saul, who was leaning on his spear in the middle of a battle. How do you happen upon the king of Israel, who's just leaning on his spear in the middle of a battle as chariots are coming at you. Like, that doesn't seem like the kind of accident any of us want happening to us. No, I don't think that it just happened. I mean, oops. And then Saul asked him to kill him. So the Malachite says, I mercifully finished him off and brought the crown and armband as proof to you. Now, you'll remember in 1 Samuel 31, if you've read through, that in that version... The true version, he told the armor bearer to kill him because Saul was scared of what the Philistines would do to him if they caught him. But the armor bearer, remember, he refused in verse 4 because he feared killing the Lord's anointed. That armor bearer understood who Saul was. He was God's king. He might have been unfaithful and unrighteous, but it was not his prerogative, it was not his position to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So Saul killed himself in 1 Samuel 31, and then the armor bearer killed himself. Now some, if you read through this, are going to claim that the Amalekite tells the the truth, offering another perspective. Here's a, a detail that was missed in that account. 
But most commentators agree that this guy is bending the truth for selfish gain. And I take that to be what's happening here. He's assuming David would reward him. I mean, think about it. Saul probably would have rewarded any man who killed David. He's gotten used to a Saul kind of rule where Saul is looking for those who are for him. Saul is not looking to God. He's looking at necromancers and and others rather than looking to God himself in prayer. This is not a godly king. And so he's gotten used to kings like the kings of the nations. Kings who are always looking for what's in it for them. And he's assuming that David is like those kings. Everybody knew Saul treated David as an enemy. I mean, David was always running from Saul. Saul was always trying to kill David. And I'm guessing that he found Saul's body with the crown and armlet as the enemy was closing in. And he began in that moment creating a half-truth to gain reward, expecting that King David would give him position, money, and who knows what else. How do you think you would react in this situation? I mean, just think about this. You're King David... And, and you're hearing the report of, of an anointed king of Israel who has been trying to kill you from day one. How would you react if you knew that someone who made your life miserable, who made you literally, uh, who literally tried to take your life, take your wife, and run you away from your home, if you found out that he had died, how would you treat him? How do you treat your enemies? And what if your enemy was also the king of God's people and your king? And I think that we're supposed to be surprised by the righteous King David's response to the death of Saul. In the rest of the text, we find three responses that David has to this death. And, and I think they're meant to startle us in some way and give us a, a picture into the righteousness of King David. So notice three responses. First, this is the first, and all of these, I think, are shocking and would have been shocking to this man, this Amalekite. First, notice the righteous king grieves in verses 11 to 12. Did you see that? He grieves. Now, I'm not sure this is the response the Amalekite expected, but catch what David does as soon as he gets the news in these two verses. Verses 11 to 12, here's what he says. It says, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, grief and lament, they are different, and we see both in these texts. See, grief is David's immediate response in the wake of the unexpected news of death. He and his people, they tore their clothes, they mourned, they wept, they fasted over the death of King Saul, his son Jonathan, and the people of the house of Israel who had fallen by the sword. And this displays and demonstrates that David took no pleasure in the deaths of God's anointed King Saul or in Jonathan's death, or God's covenant people who died at the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines. I think an important note, these are not the covenant people of God, and that is highlighted here in the text. These are people who mocked Yahweh and his king, and it is grievous to David 
Yes, there's a sense in which he senses what God is doing, placing him on his throne, but he is grieving in the moment the brokenness of the world, and isn't grief complicated? I mean, I'm sure that David, as he is grieving the loss of each of these three different entities, he is grieving in different ways. He is grieving this king who has attacked him and tried to take his life, the one who was his father-in-law and yet the one who was trying to kill him. There's a certain sense of grief that's going on there. And then you have the grief that is around this Jonathan, this man that he loved, who is his friend. And then the people of Israel, God's covenant people, the people who he would rule and reign over. And here we find this great king and warrior who has a heart that bleeds over death. Did you notice that David grieved the loss of each one of these three in different ways? But his response shows his love for God and God's people. He is bleeding over the death that has happened. The tearing of clothes signaled a shock and a horror. That's how they did it in the ancient Near East. If they wanted to to show how shocked and horrified they were by the broken of this world breaking into their lives, they would have ripped their clothes. They would have shown how horrible this thing is in the face of tragedy. And this shows that David took no part or pleasure in the death of King Saul, God's anointed. Now, grief is natural. It's a visceral response of David to death and the dishonor to God and his people. And I think that we have a a lesson here about the goodness of this king. He's not a king who overlooks the grief, but he steps into the grief with his people. That's a good Christ. That's a good king that doesn't leave us to our sufferings, but willingly steps into it with us. That's what David does. He comes in and he joins his people in this suffering. He acknowledges it, gives voice to it. I think one of the best ways to help those who are grieving is is to simply come alongside them and be present, to listen and to provide for their physical needs, to love the whole person. You know, that's the way that you do it. And, And you think about in grief, who is it that's been most centrally affected by this? And the best thing to do if you're wondering how to help them is just to sit down and listen to them. Sometimes the people that are experiencing it know best how their hearts can be ministered to. And I think real grief means that we walk and look different after a tragedy than before we did. Did you hear that? I think real grief means that we actually walk differently afterwards. Here's what I mean. You'll notice that ripping of clothes in David's day, it would have been a costly affair. In fact, the priests were not allowed to rip their garments because they were holy in the presence of God and those were special garments. But it was a costly affair. And David looks so much like Jesus here, who wept over Jerusalem for the coming judgment in Luke 19, 41. Wept over the coming judgment. He grieved over the bad that was to come to those who were not in covenant with him. And Jesus was the man of sorrows who left infinite joy and stooped down and entered into the grief with us. In fact, Isaiah 53 calls him the man of sorrow who is well acquainted with grief. That is the Savior that we have, the greater Messiah that has come for us. But there's something more here than that. Not only should we mature and have a better understanding of the value of life and how to love others better in the wake of grief, it should be something that educates our living and loving and sacrificing. But even more than that, Joel picks this up in 2, 12 to 13, and he says, catch this, there really is a strong combination between the way that we view sin in our lives and death. 
You'll remember that tearing of clothes was something you did when you were confronted by death. It's a way that you showed shock and horror over just how devastating death was. Well, Joel picks up on this in his prophecy, and he says that, you know, that's the same kind of response that we should have over our sin against God. You know, maybe we as a people need to understand just how horrific sin ought to be in our lives, and maybe we're in a terrible place when we find ourselves in a place with sin and a relationship with sin where we don't find a death-like horror over it in our own lives. And Joel 2, 12 to 13 says this, God is speaking to his people who have sinned against him and fallen away from him, and he says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. This is all language of like a funeral. And he says, catch this, rend your hearts. Tear your hearts and not your garments. Do you see that? The, the kind of horror and terror that you should have in the wake of tragedy and death should be similar to the kind of tragedy that you should sense over our sins against a holy and righteous God. And here's the question. I'm just wondering this morning if we grieve over what we should. Not just do we grieve how we should, but do we grieve over what we should. Just catch this. Joel and Paul say that we should sin, we should grieve sin, and we should do it in a godly way. There is an ungodly way to grieve. Paul picks up on that when he's speaking and writing to the church in 2 Corinthians 7. And in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says this, godly grief produces a repentance, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It is life-giving, godly grief. Whereas worldly grief, a hopeless grief that does not have an eye towards God and his salvation and his Christ, that kind of ungodly grief, this is what he says. He says, that is a worldly grief and it produces death. There is a a way to grieve that brings life and a way to grieve that brings death. But notice two things about Jesus' grief. First, Jesus didn't avoid our grief. He entered into it with us to help us in the flesh bodily. What a good king. Love that Jesus didn't just stay up in heaven and sort of mail in his help for us. He's the kind of king that comes and enters in and and takes on and body, flesh, and and person, and, and holds us and helps us. But second, did you know that King Jesus wept over unrepentant sinners? That's what caused Jesus to to weep. He knew that the, the reason for the death was the sin, and so he, 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 he wept over the cause, just like he wept over the result. So are we grieving like Jesus? Do we grieve our apathy about the gospel? Man, I, I have to pray my heart up to get excited like it ought to be about the gospel. Is anybody else like that? Have you noticed that you throttle at not being excited about the gospel like you ought to? that that's something that you have to work on every day. And not just like in the morning. Like I can can get excited about the gospel and by breakfast, I can all of a sudden find my heart growing cold. Anybody ever experienced that? It's because we are broken and we need the Spirit's help. We need to be dependent desperately on God. Do we grieve that? Do we grieve marriages that lack a zeal for God and each other? Do we grieve that? Is it a grief that drives us to repentance? Or are we just learning to, to deal with the present state of affairs as if that's okay? Do we grieve lost children, friends, and coworkers? 
Are we lax in our prayer lives? Are we comfortable in our addictions to alcohol, porn, and sex? Are those things just okay? Or do they drive us towards a godly kind of grief that says, God, I need your help because this is sin that leads to death. Are we grieving in a life-giving way or a worldly way that only produces more death? Well, notice second, the righteous king executes justice something we should be aware of. A righteous king, if he is going to remain just, must hand out just verdicts. Now, that's why that Jesus had to come to die. He had to die in our place. Why? So that he could be just in the justifier. A righteous king must ask just, act justly or he knows he's no longer just. And if he's not just, he's not good. But catch what David's response is, his second response And I'm pretty sure this, too, is not exactly what the Malachite expected as he was making that two-day journey back to David with all of Saul's regal wares. Notice what he says in verses 13 to 16. He says this. God's word says, And David said to the young man, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So you'll catch this. You'll You'll notice here that David has asked him two questions. The first, where he's from. He's just said that he's a Malachite, but now he's asking him, okay, tell me, like, where's your hometown? And he says he's a sojourner and an Amalekite. Well, this narrows the field. This means that he's living in Israel. He is not a covenant member of the people of Israel, but he is one who is living in their land and under their rules. He does not worship Yahweh, but he is living under the rule of Yahweh. He is a second-generation sojourner. So he's been there long enough to know the way that the law should be upheld and understood. Of course, we also know that David just returned from killing Amalekites who were raiding his people. This man does not know that. Ironic twist to his lie, he didn't know the current state of affairs. Not a great thing to be coming to David on this day. We also know that God rejected Saul for refusing to wipe out the Amalekites as God ordered. Of course, the Amalekite was expecting the next question, I think in this moment, the second question to be, and how much reward do you think you deserve? I I bet he's just thinking like, man, I mean, what's he going to give me? Like a car, a new camel, I don't know, something really cool. Maybe even a wife, I don't know. But instead, David asked this question, and it's actually a statement. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Now, I, I'm sure the Amalekite didn't know about David back in Israel. He had heard maybe their version of who David was. Yeah, he's one of the Philistines. He's a raider. He's a bandit. He, he doesn't love God. He's not a good guy. He's the kind of guy that, you know, you wanna, he wants to use and manipulate things. But David is a different kind of king than Saul. And the kings of the nations who operated on the basis of what they could get out of it, this was not that kind of king. You remember Saul and the kind of king that this Amalekite was used to. He's the guy that killed 85 priests 
and all the men, women, and children of Nob simply because he suspected that they were aiding and abetting one of David's escapes. This isn't a good God. This isn't a righteous king. And that's probably the kind of king that the Amalekite was expecting that he was dealing with. He must have heard how Saul sought to kill David for three decades, and David couldn't have thought kindly about that. He must not have heard, though, about how David spared Saul's life twice. In 1 Samuel 24 and 26, and you'll remember the second time when he's talking to Abishai, who is saying, let's kill him and end this now. And he speaks to Abishai and he said, who can raise his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? You don't want the guilt of the Lord on your head, the blood guilt of the Lord on your head. This is the Lord's anointed. It is God's man. It is not our prerogative to take his life. And if anybody had the right to do it, wouldn't it be David who had been anointed the future king of Israel? And yet he says, even I do not have the right to do this. The Lord alone will take care of his king. The Lord enthrones his king. And how different this Amalekite looks from Saul's armor bearer. In 1 Samuel 31.4 where Saul asks his armor bearer to kill him as the Philistines are drawing near because he says, you don't know what they'll do to me. But his armor bearer would not for he feared greatly. He feared God. He feared touching the Lord's anointed. And even though David was anointed the future king of Israel and given the spirit to reign over Israel, even he would not lift a hand against the anointed king Saul. He would trust God to give him the throne if that was God's desire. And even though this Amalekite said Saul asked him to kill him, he should have recognized that that was not Saul's right to ask him to take his life. See, David doesn't seem to realize that this Amalekite is lying and trying to capitalize on the death of Saul. So David has him executed according to Lex Talionis, that law eye for an eye, back in Deuteronomy 19.21. He says, this guy has taken blood, and so blood is on his head. That is justice. That is a righteous application of the law. And that's what he does. And that's why he says, your blood is on your own head. See, David is not guilty of this murder, but he is carrying out the vengeance of the Lord for Saul's death. He's demonstrating himself to be a righteous king who is keeping the law. Now, we see something really clearly here about the nature of David. He is the righteous king. Even here, he continues to fill out God's commands to take out the Amalekites just as Yahweh had promised that he would do to Moses in Exodus 17, 14. That's where he said he would blot out the memory of the Amalekites or Amalek from under the heaven because they were ancient enemies of God and his people. And here David is fulfilling the promises of God. In fact, 1 Samuel 28, 18 tells us that Saul said that he would, was told that he would be killed by the Philistines because he failed to obey the voice of the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek back in 1 Samuel 15. So Saul was an unrighteous king, but David was a righteous king who obeyed God. You see it? He's a different kind of king than the kings of the nations. He is the anointed king of God, the kind of king that you read about in Psalm 2. But we can also learn, I think, something from this Amalekite. He's got a lesson. He doesn't have a name, but he has a lesson for us. See, he lied and manipulated a situation for profit, and it led to death. Have you ever done that? Like, tried to, 
like manipulate your way into something and thought maybe you like, you know, God, I can kind of fudge on the truth here and I'm sure there'll be no consequences in that. I mean, this guy's really sort of a normal dude. Like he's just thinking through like, I, I see an opportunity here. I mean, here's a crown, here's an armlet. I see David, like, man, this, this could really be a great time to get a promotion. Well, Hebrews 13, 3.13 warns of the deceitfulness of sin. Hearts that are looking for selfish gain. It's dangerous. Sin leads to death. And I wonder if on his way back, that two-day journey, I mean, that's a long journey, two days to get to David. And as he's walking, I wonder if all along the way he was calculating I wonder how much I'm going to get. Or I wonder how much I can get out of this. I'm sure Satan was at work in his heart enticing him to to lie and leverage his story for his benefit. And hey, it wasn't a whole lie. It was just kind of a a half lie or a half truth, right? And he thought he was running towards wealth, but he was running towards death. What lies is Satan convincing you of? You know, I, I think that they're basically like five lies that Satan uses. I'm sure there are others, but five lies he's been using since the Garden of Eden. Five ways that he, he gets into our hearts and he starts to work on us. And maybe you've experienced some of that. Maybe you're experiencing some of that right now. Uh, one is God is withholding true joy from you, right? So like maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I feel like I'm in God's house. I feel like he's got some really good cookies that he's withholding from me. He's given me the cheap cookies but there's some really good cookies out there that God doesn't let me have. And I think Satan's going to give me the good stuff, right? Like, I just, I feel like he's got the good cookies and he's going to give me the good cookies. And you're thinking to yourself, God just, there's good that I could have that he just doesn't want me to have. Isn't that just a wrong way to view God? It's a lie. Or maybe it's the other lie of sin offers better joy than obedience. Now, now this is subtle difference, but it's You know, I think that I could be happier if I sinned, and that there's a little more joy. It just seems like sinners have more fun than, like, non-sinners. People who are trying to follow Christ, it feels like a straitjacket, but it feels like there's a lot of freedom if you don't have, like, all the rules and stuff. And so if I was just unencumbered by, you know, that whole straitjacket chains of, like, you know, being holy and good, like, I really could experience greater happiness. Let me just tell you, like, that's a lie from the pit of hell. God tells us that he has created us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He gave his infinite son for us to die for us so that we could be with him and enjoy not just momentary pleasures, but infinite joy forever. Infinite joy forever. That's the goal. And so if you're thinking to yourself that there is some good that God does not want to have you, or that there is better good in sin, here's the reality. Sin always leads to sorrow. You might say, well, how does that work? Because God reigns. He is sovereign over all things. He doesn't say, don't sin because I don't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to sin because sin leads to death. This man was probably calculating greater joy all the way back to Ziklag, and what he didn't know is the math didn't work out because God is God. Or what about third, that obedience to God is bondage, right? Not that there's good that's better if I were to sin, but the sense of like holiness is like hard and I don't like it and it's not good. Obedience is bondage. Obedience is freedom. 
Obedience to God is living and flourishing as a human, the way that God has made us. Or what about this? The joy of obedience is small and short-lived. Like, yeah, I was obedient, I felt good for a second, but then it was hard because obedience was costly. Except what we find in the Scriptures is, is that because of the nature of who Christ is and His resurrection from the death, nothing that we do is in vain. And not only that, the, the, the gifts and the blessings because of obedience are not just something that are to be enjoyed here in the moment, but forevermore. You see that? The, the obedience and the, the righteous fruit that we bear here are treasures stored up in heaven. And then sin does not have consequences. That's the basic one, right? Sin is the, the shiny ball that Satan throws out. And he just says, hey, go have it. It's shiny, it's beautiful, and it doesn't cost anything. Has anybody ever found that to be true? That sin, you ran headlong after it, you caught it, and at the end of the day, you said, this is great, there are no consequences. How many of you have experienced the shame and the guilt and the bondage that has come through actually getting the sin that you desired and finding out the promises were not what they turned out to be? That's exactly what Satan does. He's, he's lying to us. See, our culture celebrates sin against God as freedom and persecutes those who warn of the destructive effects of sin. But notice that sin always leads to sadness. That's the storyline of the Bible. It always leads to sadness and death. And sin might make you sing for a second, but just give it five minutes. You know, once I, I'm reminded of an illustration. Um, there was once this uh, woman that was in the congregation found out her husband was actually putting arsenic in her water. Um, lips started turning white. She was going day by day for this fresh, satisfying water that also had arsenic in it. And it almost killed her before she had it tested and found out what was going on. Just think about that. This world is full of things that appear to be fresh water that are laced with arsenic that are killing us and in the end lead to death, if not for the antidote of the gospel. All of sin's joys are laced with arsenic. Sin can't maintain a joyful song. It always leads to sorrow, devastation, and death. But catch this. The truth is that Jesus is a righteous king and love for Jesus looks like obedience. If you love Jesus, you will want to obey him. Why? Because you'll know how good of a king he is. And that the things he calls you to do are for your good, not just today, but forever. That's the nature of God's law. See, that's exactly what we've been called to. Sin is always leading to sorrow under his reign in both this life and the life to come. And everyone will have to give an account for the way that we live. Holiness leads to happiness. Blessed is the righteous man, woman, or child who obeys God when it's hard, trusting and not growing weary in well-doing. You can't cheat God. You can't cheat God. God cannot be cheated. Now, I don't know what it looks like on the last day as far as like how our life is is judged by Christ and how that works out. There are different people that, that say different things happen. Some say, well, because of what Christ has done, um, everybody in the end is rewarded the same. And others say, well, no, you're kind of judged according to your deeds, like what the New Testament seems to say, even as Christians. But 2 Corinthians 5.13 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whatever good or evil. That's a message to Christians. We can't cheat God. And we wouldn't want to. His plans are best for us. But third, notice his third response. The righteous king teaches his people to lament in verses 17 to 27. He teaches his people to lament 
in verses 17 to 27. Now, this is a specific kind of lament. We have different laments in the Bible. This is an elegy or a kind of funeral dirge that has been written in light of the death of Saul and Jonathan. And you'll notice the the refrain that begins and ends it and that shows up in the middle, how the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. Not only that, notice as you're looking at these verses that we're about to read, that David actually wants to teach the people of Judah to lament. The righteous king says, it is important that I teach you how to lament. In fact, he puts this in a book, a non-biblical book, that we don't see mentioned anywhere else where except for Joshua, this book called the book of Jashar, or the book of the upright, the book of the righteous. Now, you can't see this in English, but there's one more thing I want you to look at before we read this text. Look at verse 18. You'll notice that it says, and he said, it should be taught. Now, in the original Hebrew, it actually says, where it says it, the bow should be taught. The bow, like a a bow that you would shoot an arrow out of. Many have tried to figure out what this means and have speculated as to why he calls it the bow. Nobody knows for sure. But I think that maybe verses 19 to 27 give us some kind of clue. So let's look at this this lament and see if we can understand what's happening. So look with me there again. Here's what he says in verses 19 uh, down to to the end. He says this. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the trees of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided, they were Swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. How the mighty have fallen. And the weapons of war perished. Now, your glory in verse 19, it actually comes from the same word for gazelle. And there might be a kind of wordplay that's going on here. You'll remember that Saul was on a mountain when he was struck by an arrow back in 1 Samuel 31. And and it's almost a picture of a glorious, majestic gazelle who's prancing on the mountains where he should be safe and secure when he is struck by an arrow on the mountain of Gilboa. And then Gilboa became famous as the place where Saul fell forevermore. That's how it was known. And you'll remember that a Philistine who shot an arrow from his bow wounded Saul, leading to his death. David remembered how the daughters of Israel had sung to him. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And yet here, he sees decades later, in the light of Saul's death, 
He's devastated by the thought of the daughters of those uncircumcised Philistines rejoicing in Gath and Ashkelon, those, those cities that, that demonstrated all of Philistia. He's, he's just, he's in horror about them actually celebrating not just the victory of their king and their people, but their god, Dagon. And then in verse 21, he curses the mountain of Gilboa with drought. Why? Because the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. I think this here, shield, that is anointed, anointed is from the word Messiah. And so he's saying that this anointed shield, it it sort of is a, a metaphor or a picture both for the shield that fell that would have been oiled to have like, you know, the, the spears and stuff ricochet off of it, as well as the king who was anointed with the spirit who had the protection of the Lord upon him. This king has fallen. And did you catch who is famed for the use of the bow in verse 22? We know this from elsewhere in 1 Samuel, but who is famous for using the bow? Jonathan. You remember that Jonathan gave David his robe, armor, and even his, what? Bow and belt as symbols of his covenant with David back in 1 Samuel 18. He gave him his bow. That was a sticking point with Saul who tried to kill Jonathan with a spear at one point for his faithful love to David, which compromised Jonathan's throne. Saul says, do you really want to like link up with this guy, have a covenant with him when it's going to cost you everything? Now, if you've been tracking, you know the bow of Jonathan never turned and ran because he was brave in battle and Saul was famed for the sword. Jonathan famed for the bow, Saul here for the sword. Now, if you've been tracking, verse 23 is interesting. The language is elevated. They never divided in life or death. Really? I mean, I remember Jonathan Saul having an interesting complex relationship, right? Not to mention the time he threw his spear at Jonathan. Doesn't seem like they were never divided in life and death. But the point is, is that all through life, Jonathan stuck with Saul and was faithful to his dad. He was faithful to David and he was faithful to Saul. He was a righteous man. And he was even to the point of death. He died with his father on that mountain. Also, the language is elevated, you'll notice, in the sense that they were remembered as mighty warriors, swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. And he tells the daughters of Israel who rejoiced over Saul's victories to now weep over his death. This is a time for mourning. Now, if I'm David, I'm not sure this is the way that I'm talking about King Saul, who tried to kill me and end me day after day. But he's honored as a mighty warrior king and pictured almost like Captain Planet. He's a superhero. But David knew how to honor the emperor in the same way that 1 Peter calls Christians to honor the emperor. In the same way that we pray as a church every week for people in political places. The reason that we do that is because we are called by God to pray for them. But take note of the distinct way that David speaks of Jonathan in verses 25 to 26. Did you catch it? It's, it's different and it's subtle and you might miss it. But there's an important subtlety here. He says this. How the mighty have fallen, verse 25, in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. So now he's focusing on Jonathan. But did you catch what David did? He speaks of Jonathan saying he lies on your high places. But then in verse 26, he speaks to Jonathan as though Jonathan's living. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. 
Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now, I wish I had a lot of time to linger here. I could like preach this all day long. But some have used this text to say that there is some kind of homoerotic love between David and Jonathan. But if you've been tracking, you have seen that this love has been political and co- covenantal and familial. But David also speaks to Jonathan as though death cannot separate him from his love for Jonathan. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You have died, but death does not separate my love for you, my brother. And David has covenanted with Jonathan that he would be his right-hand man once Saul died. That was the plan. David sat in, in Ziklag dreaming of the day when he and Jonathan, the man that he loved and trusted more than anyone, would serve with him, that intimate friend and confidant, the guy who always had his back, even if his dad was trying to kill him. And yet death interrupted David's plan. It wasn't the way that David saw it going down. But David and Jonathan shared a kind of intimacy that was real and that it was good. And one of the problems, I think, with our culture is that we have begun to equate intimacy with sex. In fact, um, there's a, a pop song. I like pop music. I'm sorry. I confess that I'm working through it. But Demi Lovato, she, she sings repetitively in this song, Tell Me That You Love Me. And tell me to love you, she says this over and over again, you ain't nobody till you got somebody. And her belief is just this sense that her identity is found in her lover. So that she doesn't really have identity apart from that and until that. And she's begging for that identity to be found in this person. Now to be sure, David did not have great relationships with his wives. If you're thinking through like, what's a biblical character to look to for a model for how to treat women, David might not be your guy. And if you don't believe me, just read through like, like everything that David's written and all of his relationships with women. Just not a great model. I mean, a lot of times his relationships with women look more like political moves than meaningful friendships and intimacy. So I don't look to David for how to treat my wife. We don't just need a better king than Saul. We need a better king than David too. But that said, if you are single or married, you should know that it is a good thing to have meaningful relationships outside of marriage. In fact, we're encouraging one-to-one discipleship over and over as one of the ways that we are trying to encourage and foster meaningful relationships, intimacy with one another over the Word of God. But we should aim at sharing ourselves with others. I know it's a scary thing to want to share yourself, not something I'm naturally prone to do. Uh, So, for instance, I have one brother that uh, when I go out to eat, uh, he, he wants to pray and he wants to hold my hand. And he reaches out and is like, nope, not there, not going to go there. But I know that for him, it's just a symbol of the fact that we have intimacy, and there's nothing wrong with that. I have another brother that, like, like, kisses me on the cheek, and I'm always like, what just happened? I mean, I love you too, but, and I take it and receive it, because I know he loves me, right? And you got to know me really good before you can do that, I'm just saying. <laughs> but we should aim at sharing ourselves with others and have an intimate relationship with others. Maybe even in ways that this world is startled by. You know, many sins can lead us to other sins. You know, many sins can lead us to pornography. Many, and I could go through a number. I don't think it's always the same thing that's driving us there. But one is a lack of healthy intimacy in our lives. You know, we have surfacy relationships and we long for intimacy and we don't know where to find it and we go surfing the web for intimacy. You're not gonna find intimacy on the web, right? 
Anybody? Okay. In fact, in Redefining Intimacy, Ed Shaw confesses as a celibate pastor who fights homosexual desires every day that one of the great weapons against sexual temptation is intimate friendships where he knows and is known. I'm just wondering if maybe some of you are just trapped in sin because you just need to be known and to know. Catch this. We need people that we can confess to and get help, where we can not be invisible anymore but be seen. So do you have a Jonathan in your life? If you don't have a Jonathan in life, you need to find a Jonathan in your life. Do you have someone that you would allow behind the, the storefront of your life to see the man or woman behind the curtain who may be so much less impressive than what people think they're looking at? You know, I feel a lot of times like I'm reliving uh, The Wizard of Oz. Y'all ever seen that? Like Dorothy and the whole movie, they're terrified of this great and awesome Wizard of Oz. And at the end of the movie, they show up and they're in his like courtroom and they're like terrified. And then somebody looks behind the curtain and there's this little man just pulling like levers and stuff. And he's like, what, your eyes? Like that is so unimpressive. We've been terrified by you? I feel sometimes like that's me. Like if you really knew me, you wouldn't be so impressed. Now you're thinking I wasn't impressed anyway. Well, it's even worse than that. See, hiding is dangerous. Sin loves to lurk in the dark and grow. Now, back to the title of this lament. What was taught to Judah in the book of the upright, entitled The Bow? Why would David want his people even to remember this horrible day in history? It seems like the thing that would be wiped away where these two great warriors fell. See, this lament centers on unrighteous King Saul and his righteous son. One fell by the bow and the other lived by the bow. Do you catch that? Both died on the same day. And Jonathan's bow was a symbol of his covenant with David, which would extend from generation to generation to all of his house. Similarly, God gave Noah a rainbow, which is God's war bow up in the sky as a symbol of his covenant not to rain down judgment in a flood of water again. Here the bow represents the Messiah's covenant with Jonathan, And of course, we have a better Christ who hears our cries and laments, and we have a better symbol than the bow. We have the cross, right? The bow, think about it. It was a weapon that brought protection and judgment all at the same time, an instrument of mercy and covenant between Jonathan and David, and also an instrument of war and battle and death. Both things, mercy and justice in this symbol. And isn't the cross another symbol that brings both the promise of justice of a righteous king and also mercy through a new and better covenant that comes in Jesus Christ. See, we have a better Christ who hears our cries and laments as well. David prayed to the God who keeps our tears in a bottle in Psalm 56. But Jesus is the Christ who came to wipe away every tear. He is the greater king, the greater Messiah. And catch this, this lament ends with a section that began with Hannah's song back in 1 Samuel 2. And I believe Hannah's song speaks of the one who is greater than death, who can give hope amidst death. In other words, this this little lament that we have called the bow, I think is drawing us back to Hannah's song. And look what Hannah says in 1 Samuel 2, 2 to 6. I wish I could read more, but this is what it says. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. 
Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God sees all things. He is truly just in all ways. You can't trick God. Four, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings to Sheol and he raises up. Do you see this? this is the God who humbles and exalts? The one who takes down even to death and then raises up. Does that sound familiar? You know what's interesting is um, this is a message that we have uh, David crying out on the third day, three days after a Messiah died. Sound familiar? Maybe a pattern that 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking of seen all throughout the Old Testament. Same kind of pattern we see in Jonah. But here's the big problem. God is coming as a righteous king. Jesus is coming back. And Romans 3 tells us, none is righteous, no, not one. So what hope do any of us have of this great king? See, death is God's judgment on sin. So how can sinners have hope? It's because our identity is not in our fighting. It's not in our own strength. Our lament and the glory of our hope is not that we were mighty warriors swifter than eagles. We are the brokenhearted who had God come from the broken people and the brokenness of this world to save and rescue us because God did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners like you and me. See, I love how Paul speaks of the identity shift of those who have put their faith in Christ. And the only people that come to Christ are those who come broken knowing that they are sinners and they aren't great warriors. They need God's salvation, salvation that only he can bring. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we find in the good Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Messiah of Revelation 21.4, who promises to wipe away every tear of every lament. The same Messiah of 1 Corinthians 15, who is our victorious warrior, whom we can trust because he has been raised from the dead. Our works are not in vain. Those who believe in this king, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this in verse 9. I love this. Or do you not, do you not know, it starts off bad, but it gets better. Just listen close. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, right, coming before a righteous king, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Man, if there's an unrighteous, who's got hope? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexually, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And all of us are thinking like, in some way, I think I might fit in some or all of those categories. And you're thinking, where's the hope? Well, man, praise God for verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and by the Spirit of our God. And the Spirit and the Son testify that you were loved by God. What a glorious promise to the people of God. So know this, there's a righteous king coming. And we have great hope. Because we have a greater Savior and a greater Messiah in Jesus. Let's pray.